Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Amen. Father God, I commit this time to you and ask that uh, you would anoint uh, my lips and out of weakness cause your strength to be known. I pray that you would quicken the word to each and every heart here. Father, that we would grow to love you the better, having heard your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most of you know that uh, Calvin and Hobbes is my favorite cartoon strip. And one of the strips that I really liked is where Calvin is lying in his bed in the dark and he's calling out, Mom! And Mom comes into his room bedraggled and very tired looking and uh, not looking very pleased with him, but Kelvin very cheerfully asks her, how do ugly things like bugs and octopuses reproduce? Are they really attracted to each other? (laughs) And the next frame shows her chewing Kelvin out for asking such an inane question at that time of night. And as she's leaving, Kelvin is commenting to Hobbes on her bad mood and saying, Come to think of it, how are humans attracted to each other? (laughs) Hobbes, in obvious agreement, says, well, maybe that's why they close their eyes when they smooch. (laughs) (laughs) How are Christians attracted to each other? There are actually two or three answers out there in the church that are vying for your attention. But this morning, I want to convince you that it is the power of God And it is the power of God alone. When you look at the New Testament answers, it's very clear that the things that were going on here to produce community did not really have natural explanations. Now, there are natural things that produce some kinds of uh, unity amongst people. And uh, you'll see different answers in uh, the church uh, for how we develop community. You'll have a needs-driven answer for support groups. You'll have sociological answer, a psychological answer. But uh, in the book of Ephesians, uh, one of the things that you will see is that they were not attracted to each other because they had similar backgrounds or common pains and struggles, even though those things do draw people together in a a kind of a a bond. uh, They can be beneficial. But when you look at the kind of community that he was talking about in this book, you find incompatible people living compatibly together. In fact, it's enough to make a Calvin and the Hobbes in the world sit up and scratch their head in puzzlement. Because in this book, you've got Jew and Gentile, slave and free. You've got young and old all living together. You find the rich and the poor on an equal footing. Uh, you find uh, uh, the, the various types of people who... T- Uh, on the surface would look like they're not compatible working together in genuine community. True community is so different from the kind of community that the world counterfeits that Jesus says this is actually one of the marks 
that His grace and His presence is with us. He says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love uh, one to another. You might ask, why would that be the case? Isn't there a kind of love out there? Yes, there is. Uh, Jesus says, if you love your, if you love your uh, brother um, or if you love a person who does good things to you, what do you do more than unbelievers? Yeah, they love each other too. But when you can love the unlovable, that is a demonstration of the grace of God uh, working through you. And so today we're going to be looking at the power of God and community. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that Paul was attracted to the Corinthians. He was not attracted to them because they were such nice people or because they were particularly nice to him. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. You'll realize they actually were pretty mean to him. And yet it says very clearly that despite the fact this was a messed up church, Paul was attracted to them. And he even said in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you. I can think of some people like those in Corinth who I would have a hard time thanking God always for if God had not subdued my sinful passions and given to me a love for them. In 2 Corinthians 12:15, he spoke how he deeply loved the Corinthians. He longed for them. And if there was a Calvin and a Hobbes looking on at this attraction that he had for the Corinthians, they'd probably be scratching their heads over it. And yet Paul indicates that even though there were problems, genuine community was happening in Corinth. And Paul does the same in this chapter. He later on shows out that there are moral problems in Ephesians. In this chapter, he points out there are people who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And yet they have a community in Christ that he is calling them to enjoy more and more. The power of God and community. And I want to just review a little bit of where we have been so far. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul lays the theological foundations for true community. Then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he calls the Ephesians to line their attitudes up with the doctrine that he has just given to them. And then in 4 through 6, he describes the nature of this community. And he does all of that before he gets to the activities that produce community in verses 7 through 16. You see, it's only as we... uh, are established in doctrine as we know the power of God that this kind of community is going to be meaningful and effective. And today I want to briefly look at the role that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all play in producing community uh, in the church. Uh, There are seven ones mentioned in these verses. Verse 4 gives three ones that are connected with the Spirit. Verse 5 gives three ones connected to the Son. And verse 6 gives a one connected to the Father. And I'm I'm just going to deal with verses 4 through 6. Let me read that again. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, if we're already made one by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, why do we even have to work at it? Uh, Why does verse 3 say that we have to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit? I want you to notice, though, in verse 3, that we don't produce the unity. We simply keep it. Okay, Uh, The unity is first wrought by God, and we either then hinder that unity or we keep that unity by His power, but we cannot produce uh, that community. And so we shouldn't pit divine sovereignty over against human responsibility. We're going to be seeing both are true. For example, and let's move into Roman numeral one here. 
When Paul says that there is one body, he is not denying that Christians make divisions. They do. They do it all the time. Uh, he wrote the, uh, the Corinthians, I hear that there are divisions among you. But in the same epistle, Paul says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And so the spirit makes one body. And we sometimes in our sin try to make divisions. We try to get multiple bodies going. There is a spiritual union that we have with members of the kingdom in Sudan and uh, in China and all over the world and in past ages. Doesn't matter how many divisions, sinful divisions we may experience, nothing will break that one body. He has already produced it. Now, that ought to affect how we treat other denominations. Unfortunately, denominations sometimes become excuses for permanent division with each other. But that was not the way it was intended. Back in the 1600s, there was a, a treatise that was written by one of the uh, signers of the Westminster Confession. And I believe he was on the committee there, but it was Jeremiah Burroughs. And he wrote this treatise on why denominationalism can actually be used to promote unity within the body. Uh, he said, think about it. The word denomination itself implies that there is a unity of the church because we're not the only church here. We're just one denomination among many of the true church of Jesus Christ. And so he said it's an ecumenical term. It assumes that the church is broader than us. But he says at the same time, it keeps there from being uh, bickering within the in, within the denomination, enables the denomination not to have its hands tied, to be able to be moving forward in their uh, in their desire to grow in the faith, to understand the scriptures, to be growing in unity in, in, in doctrine. Um, and verses 13 through 15 command us to do that. And take a look at verse 5. See that Jesus has already given the faith. It's the body of beliefs, uh, which covers what uh, Peter calls all things that pertain to life and godliness. So he's already given the faith in the Scriptures. And yet the Ephesians have not arrived yet. If you look at verses 13 through 15, he says, till we all come to the unity of the faith. To a mature man. We're not there yet. Verse 14 indicates that uh, they were still being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And so in order to preserve doctrinal integrity, there is sometimes a need for denominations. But we must all be ready to affirm the Apostles' Creed that there is one universal or Catholic um, uh, church. There is one body that Christ has brought. And the word body, I think, is interesting because... Uh, it implies that we are not just an organization. This is not talking about an organization, but an organism, a living, life-giving, um, relational uh, body. Here's what Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says. There is not added one pope, one council, one form of government. So it's not an organization. It's a living, life-giving body that the church is likened to. And he also implies in this chapter that the body or the church um, is, is um, not broader than the true elect, the elect of God. I received um, an invitation from Countryside Community Church last week, uh, and it invited me and invited other Christians to stand together with practitioners, get a load of this, with practitioners of, quote, centering prayer, transcendental yogic and Buddhist meditation, claiming that unless the churches all get together in these meditations, uh, 
I was going to say seances, but these meditation things that there is no hope for global unity. And in that uh, call, they said, much of the body of mankind is aching to stand in solidarity. Much of the body of humankind or mankind, that's not the body that Paul is talking about. He has already defined his terms. If you take a look at chapter 1, verses 22, the very end of verse 22, he speaks of the church, verse 23, which is his body. He's defined the body as being the church of Jesus Christ. And all over America, there is a movement to distort and to redefine the terms of communion and unity given in this chapter. For example, the emergent church movement is making the lines of distinction between various religions very, very fuzzy, implying we're all part of one body and eventually we'll all be merged into, uh, into one. But the Spirit defines true community in this verse. There's only one body that the Spirit indwells and that one body has a calling. He says, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Now, let me make a distinction here. <clears throat> this is not talking about the outward call where the word of God is brought uh, to bear in people's lives. Uh, Jesus said about the outward call of the gospel, many are called, but few are chosen. That is to be distinguished from the inward call of the Holy Spirit where He powerfully draws people's hearts out to embrace the outward call of the gospel. And in that one, uh, the inward call of the, of the Spirit, people respond to that just as surely as Lazarus came out of the tomb when he was called to salvation. Okay, so it's an invincible call that he gives. Romans 8, 29 through 30 indicates that all whom God predestined to life will be called. All who are called, he says, will be justified. All who are justified will be glorified. Uh, they call that the unbreakable golden chain of salvation. And so everybody called by the Spirit is saved. 1 Peter 2, 9 says that God called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so you can have two brothers, two twin brothers, if you wanted, sitting side by side listening to the gospel of Jesus Christ and one of them would be utterly unmoved by that message because all he is hearing is the outward call of the Word of God being preached by man. That's all he hears and it's boring. It doesn't affect him at all. Whereas his brother is moved. He is touched. He's brought to tears. His heart is drawn out to salvation because he has received the inward call of the Spirit through that Word that is being preached. <clears throat> And we really can't explain the difference humanly. Even within the church of Jesus Christ, outwardly, there are people who have responded to the outward call, but they're not part of the body of Christ because they've never had the inward call of the Holy Spirit upon their lives. In fact, in 1 John, he explains, there are some people who have apostatized, but he said they never were of us. They never were in the body in the first place. They responded outwardly, but they did not have this call of the Spirit drawing them in to the true body of Christ. And so it's the powerful work of the Spirit which draws us away from our sinful impulses into the fellowship with each other that has never been performed upon their hearts. On the other hand, there may be a person who's resistant to biblical community, and yet, if God's call is upon his life, his resistance will eventually be broken down. He will not consistently be able to break fellowship with God's people. 
Uh, there's a unifying power in God's call. I remember a story of the first missionaries who went to the country of New Zealand and they had established a church among the former headhunters uh, there. And P.J. McLagan relates this story. He said, in New Zealand, the Lord's Supper was being celebrated. The first rank, having knelt, a native rose up and returned to his seat, but again returned to the rank and knelt down. Being questioned, he said, well, when I went to the table, I did not know whom I should have to kneel beside, when suddenly I saw by my side the man who a few years before slew my father and drank his blood, and whom I then devoted to death. Imagine what I felt when I suddenly found him by my side. A rush of feeling came over me that I could not endure, and I went back to my seat. But when I got there, I saw the upper sanctuary and the great supper, and I thought I heard a voice saying, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. That overpowered me. I sat down and at once seemed to see another vision of a cross with a man nailed to it. And I heard him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then I returned to the altar. So here was a guy who his former life was motivating him to break fellowship with this guy. He didn't want to have anything to do with him. But the call of God's Spirit upon his life overcame him. The call for forgiveness overcame him and united him in a fellowship with outwardly you just would not expect. In fact, we just recently finished the book uh, Peace Child by Don Richardson. And there was a guy in there that Don was trying to be making a peace with different tribes. And this guy, he could tell, wanted to kill this newcomer that had come in. And Don grabbed him by the ears, which was their method of pleading the peace child and, 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 and uh, appeal to his conscience. And he said you could just see the transformation coming over him as God's call. Because this guy previously had stolen and eaten his baby. And he just he wanted to kill him. He just had that impulse for revenge. And the testimony is that God's grace, God's call to forgiveness, had brought people who are utterly incompatible into unity with each other. A remarkable, remarkable story. And so, calling does not stop at conversion. It is a calling that the Spirit produces upon us throughout our lives and draws us into His purposes for us. Now, let me quickly quote some Scriptures which show how this call of the Spirit produces community. First, the Spirit's call is the answer to isolationism and this is not in your outlines, but it's the answer to isolationism because Scripture says you were called in one body. You were called into the fellowship of His Son. 1 Corinthians 1.9 That means if you're truly saved, you've been called into a body and you have been called into fellowship. It is the answer to elitism because 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble were called. He didn't say not any, but not many. And his purpose was to destroy elitism within the assembly. The Spirit's calling is the answer to racism. Since Romans 9 says that we all deserve damnation, but God in His mercy saved us. And it says, whom He called... Not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Romans 9.24 It's the answer to discord. Because 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Okay, we were called into fellowship. That's the first impulse that the Spirit of God puts upon our hearts. And if we have no longings whatsoever for fellowship, it's an indication. Maybe we have just answered the outward call of the gospel. We have not answered the inward call. But the Spirit powerfully and effectually calls us into fellowship. And if that's not the case, you know, it doesn't matter how much we change outwardly, the things in the church to try to promote community, people will not be interested in that. We must have this inward, powerful work of the Holy Spirit drawing us into fellowship to desire that kind of community. The Spirit's calling is the answer to age divisions because Acts 2.39 says the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. It's the answer to the unfaithfulness that you find amongst Christians. And we are unfaithful, aren't we? It's the answer to unfaithfulness because God promises in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. He calls you. He does it. Why? Because He is faithful. His faithfulness answers our unfaithfulness to the call of God's Spirit. And so if we have um, not experienced his calling, there's no point in even trying to engage in the community building activities that we're going to begin to look at next week. Now, having said all of that, it's still important to uh, notice that the Spirit does not bypass our own activities. We might assume, okay, the Spirit's going to do it. We don't have to be active. It's not something immediately accomplished or there would be no need for hope. Okay, that word hope implies there's still something yet to be accomplished. If it's already accomplished, it's no longer hope, is it? So there's something more that needs to be done. But it also shows that we need to take uh, verse 3 seriously. The Spirit accomplishes all of the dimensions of this community over a long process of time in our lives because He wants our involvement in it. He never wants to do it where we're passive. And so verse 3 says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit gives the desire, He gives the expectation, He gives the hope, which drives us then to endeavor to keep that community. Uh, He he gives that deep longing for community. Now, I want us to think about the word hope a little bit more. Proverbs 13, verse 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Now, we all know hope is an incredible motivator in the right circumstances, but if hope keeps getting put off and put off and put off, eventually it discourages a person so much they just want to give up on it, right? And I think it's very important then that we have a realistic hope, that we have a hope that takes into consideration all of the defects that Paul is going to say are already and will continue to be in the church. If we have an unrealistic hope, then it will um, let us down and we're never going to be satisfied. In fact, I think this is one of the reasons why people hop from church to church is because their hope gets deferred. They become sick and upset about it and they want to go on elsewhere. I knew one person that moved to about 50 different churches in his city over quite a period of years. Sometimes he'd stay for several months Uh, Sometimes it was quicker. Sometimes he would stay for over a year, but always eventually he'd get really frustrated with the church, sometimes even angry, and he would move on to another church. And what was going on as I analyzed this guy's life is that he had totally unrealistic expectations. That means his hope was not a biblical hope. And hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's going to make you give up. 
And so that's one of the reasons why it's so important we go through the doctrine of community before we go to the how-to of community. We've got to understand, is my hope, is the thing that I'm aiming towards realistic or is it unrealistic? You see, the hope that the Spirit engenders in our heart is very realistic because uh, he says that the hope he gives is a a hope that um, uh, produces within us patience, produces within us a desire to work at it. Okay, that implies that there is going to be problems. It's not an unrealistic, perfectionistic expectation. Here's how Paul words it in Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And if you look in the context, that whole section there is talking about community, both the pastor and the the members and the relationship with each other, doing good to one another. He's talking about community. He says, as you sow into each other's lives the principles of community and you persevere at it, eventually you're going to get a harvest. And so the kind of hope that the Spirit calls us to is not that we will find a church that will meet all of our needs, has no mistakes or problems, that will require no patience or perseverance on my part. We've got to be involved and we're going to uh, reap if we sow. And we've got to sow. We've got to keep sowing in hope. Now, we can increase our hope in four ways. And this, too, is not in your outlines. First, by keeping your eyes on the Scripture promises. Romans 15.4 says that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Okay, it's got to be a biblically grounded hope. And I think that even though the... <laughs> The church universal right now is in a sad state of affairs. When you start reading the scripture promises, it gives you hope that there will eventually be a unity in truth, a unity in practice, a unity in goals, a unity in, in a holiness. And we ought to keep persevering uh, for that. This is one of the things that drives the COR is that the Bible gives us hope that these things are possible. Coalition on Revival, that is. A second, we must be a people of prayer who depend upon God. Romans 15:13 says, "Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit." Now, if hope comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to be praying for that, right? 1 Peter 1:13 says, "Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you." Our hope can't be a Pollyanna type of humanistic Uh, thinking where people will all have it all sorted out together. It's realistic because it recognizes there are problems that we're going to be faced. But as we bank upon the sufficiency of his grace, it'll give us hope that we can do it. It'll produce something we cannot in ourselves. Third, seeing success in other people's lives can give you hope. Uh, Second Corinthians nine, two says that the changes that were beginning to be wrought in Corinth gave hope to the Macedonians. Okay? So as you see other people being successful in community, it can give you hope that we can be successful as well. Fourth, developing our own maturity gives hope according to Romans 5, verse 5. Because it says, character produces hope. Romans 5, 5. Character produces hope. Idealistic community, it's a shallow concept, but biblical community requires all four of these graces. A vision cast by Scripture a dependence upon grace, concrete examples in the Bible, concrete examples that we can watch in our own church, and then a willingness to grow in character ourselves. Now, that's a big task. 
And yet that's what the Spirit says He is able to accomplish and that He will accomplish as we take Him at His Word. Now let's look at the next three things that bring unity. Verse 5 speaks of Christ's work when it says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Uh, the phrase one Lord was a uh, rallying cry in the early church uh, when there were many competing lords. And they said, nope, there's an exclusivity to Jesus. There is only one Lord that we are willing uh, to acknowledge. And this verse says that every believer shares a common submission at the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, we all submit uh, to his Lordship. Now, does that mean we're perfectly holy? Obviously not, because Paul goes on to talk about the... Uh, the um, fact that the Ephesians weren't, but they all began at the same place. They bowed their knees before the Lord Christ. They were willing to follow Him. Hebrews 2.11 says, For both He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, if Christ is not ashamed to call them brethren, even though they've got tons of sanctification that they've got to go through, then we shouldn't be ashamed to call them brethren either, should we? We should be patient with them. Now, Christ also, on the other hand, makes it equally clear that if they're not willing to submit to His Lordship, then they're not saved. You cannot accept Him as Savior and reject Him as Lord. <clears throat> there is no way you can count the World Council of Churches or even the National Council of Churches as part of that unity because in so many ways they deny the Lordship of Christ. There are churches I can't have fellowship with because built right into their doctrinal statement is a denial of the Lordship of Christ. In fact, in Matthew 7, it says there are many people who even call Him Lord, but they will not submit to His Lordship in obedience. And he says they're not saved. So holiness is not an option. The more we grow in holiness, the more unity we experience. Secondly, we enter more and more into unity as we receive His Word more and more. Verse 5 insists that there is only one faith. He's not talking about our subjective faith there. He's talking about the objective body of truth called the faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, the faith that uh, Jude says we must earnestly contend for. And in the rest of this chapter, Paul is saying the same thing. We may not understand everything that's in the faith, uh, but he's given to us the faith in the Scriptures and we need to be committed to those Scriptures. We can't neglect them or reject them. Christ has given the faith, verse 13 says, that we must come to the unity of the faith. And it really bothers me when there are attempts amongst churches to promote unity by minimizing and make smaller and smaller what our doctrinal commitments are. That's going the opposite direction of what this chapter says we should be going. Yes, we're not going to have everything figured out, but we need to be going more and more into the unity of the faith. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, Doctrine is being discounted in the interests of supposed unity. The fact is, however, that there is no unity apart from truth and doctrine, and it is departure from this that causes division and breaks unity. Can you see that? The blame's not on the people who are holding to the doctrine. He says the, the blame really comes on the people who are deviating from doctrine. They're breaking the unity that God desires. And I've been gratified to see the reversal of this trend through two organizations. The first one you've already known about, the Coalition on Revival has produced a number of great documents. And then the other one uh, that, that's building upon what they have done is the International Church Council. 
And if you'd like some of their documents, I can get those to you. Uh, they're in the process. They've been over a period of years uh, refining these doctrinal statements uh, with representatives from churches all over the country of the U.S. initially, but now it's internationally being worked on. And it's just so exciting to see how these people are recognizing heresies in their denominations, how they're recognizing the need to grow in the truth. And they're doing a fantastic job. I love what's coming out of these uh, out of these organizations. The third thing that Christ does is to give baptism. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, some think this is referring to water baptism, but Jesus didn't baptize one person with water. Uh, his disciples did. This is talking about something Jesus produces. And what is that? It's baptism of the Spirit. John the Baptist says, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so there's a dovetailing of the Spirit's work with Jesus' work. <clears throat> there can be no unity without regeneration and the gift of the Spirit. And so verse 5 really contrasts counterfeit unities found in false ecumenical movements with the unity that Christ established. They speak of all religions getting together, but that would be to affirm many lords, not one lord. Uh, they affirm there are many paths to heaven, but and they try to d dismiss doctrinal divisions, but this insists there's only one true faith. And I don't think we should even be remotely interested in any kind of unity that is diluting the faith. The baptism of the Spirit is exclusionary. While only the elect are baptized with the Spirit, uh, the non-elect are going to be baptized with fire in, in hell. And so it's exclusionary. And then finally, there is only one Father. Verse 6 says, One God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. The Pharisees claimed to be the true church, but Jesus denied that and said, You don't even have God as your Father. You are of your Father the devil, and the lusts of your Father you want to do. Now that is as clear a denial of the liberal notion as you can get that there is a universal brotherhood of man and a universal fatherhood. They appeal to this verse, by the way. But uh, Jesus contradicts that. Hebrews 12 says that those who are not chastened by God are not loved by God and are illegitimate and not sons. But He is the Father to all in the body. And that's the context. It's not all universally. It's all universally in the church, all the body. And the children who own Him as Father should not reject each other as brothers and sisters. That's the point. And so it's important that we not take the all as broader than the context, which is the body in the previous verse, it's the you in this verse. And it's also important that we take the all seriously within the church. When the emergent church leader, Brian McLaren, twists this verse into a, a proof text for universal salvation and a divine spark being in everyone, everybody being merged back into God, he's taking it totally out of context. He's making community much broader than God does. And we'll look at that in a moment. But it's important that we not make the lines narrower than God does either. Once you're in God's family, it would be insulting to God the Father to say, hey, I'm willing to associate with these brothers and sisters, but God, we're just going to cast out these other brothers and sisters. That's not our place. We associate with those whom God has brought into the body. And so those are the two errors that we need to avoid. Being so loose, there's no lines around Jerusalem and all religions are embraced. Or being so restricted, we think we're the only true church. 
We're family because we have one Father that is in common. And so this verse says, first of all, that the Father is above all. He is transcendent. This stands in contrast to heretical monism that makes God so close that He is indistinguishable from His creation. Okay, God cannot be confused with the creation. He's above the creation. He's different from the creation. He's transcendent from the creation. In total contrast... Brian McLaren and other emergent church leaders describe themselves as panentheists. Not pantheists, but panentheists, where God is in everything. Doug Paget says, in the emerging church, the idea that there is a necessary distinction of creation from creator is being reconsidered. And man, when you, when you realize, when you read their writings, you realize it's majorly being reconsidered. Um, initially, I just ignored this movement because I thought, you know, they're such they're so nutso. Nobody's even going to take them seriously. And yet they're infecting the evangelical church all over America. It's just amazing because they are so clever with their words. Everything is crafted in evangelical language. And yet what they're doing is they're bringing new ageism into the church of Jesus Christ. It's called the new light theology. Some of you guys have been reading. Uh, from the emergent literature. I just want you to be aware this is paganism coming into the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, let me just give you a sample dialogue that denies that the Father is transcendent. One of their leaders quotes Jesus and says, uh, Jesus says, I am the bread. And he says, okay, if you really take Jesus seriously and literally, you're going to see an identity between Jesus and the bread. Jesus says, I am the bread. That means that the bread is Jesus, which means that the creator and the creation are identified. There is not a distinction between the two. Now, you can sort of see where he is going with this. He goes on. He says, the created is just part of God. It's God. It's, a, it's the spark of God that's going to be reunited with God. And so he said, Jesus could just as well have said, not just I am the bread, but I am the chair and the chair is me or I am you and you are me. Um, God is creation and creation is God. His conclusion was, we are all a part of God and God is all in us and everything will be merged into one. But that's a, you know, very clear and bold there. But many times they're muddied and they draw evangelicals into their concepts with passages like Ephesians 1 and Ephesians uh, chapter 4. And Paul's first phrase in here indicates there is a transcendence that implies an absolute creator-creature distinction. It also implies the Father's authority over the church and the importance of submitting to His Word, which these people sure are not doing. The next phrase says that he is through us all. Now, that means he causes our grace, his grace to flow through us to others. God knows nothing of people who take in and take in and take in and never give anything out. If your lake has no outlet, you're going to become a dead sea, right? If that word through is not true of you, you are a dead sea. <clears throat> Jesus said, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That means that every believer is not only a receiver of water, he is a giver of that living water, right? And this is essential for community. Every believer is a giver as well as a receiver. Christians who drink of God's grace find that their innermost beings 
begin to flow into community with others in giving these living waters. God works through us, which means we must minister to others in the family. It means we've got family responsibilities. Finally, it says He is in you all. Now, McLaren says that God is in everyone, but the you, or as the majority text has it, the us that he is talking about is the church. God is not in everyone in the redemptive sense that Paul talks about here. Sure, he's, univer- he's, he's omnipresent. This is talking about a redemptive community presence that is being lived above us and through us and in us. I'll just give you an example. 1 John 14.23 Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So this is speaking of an indwelling fellowship. God's presence within each member is the power that brings fellowship. So can you see the, the, the relationship? These verses... I have in this whole discussion. In verses 4 through 6, it says we need the power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in order to achieve the community that we have been called to. The liberal conception of community will not cut it. It is simply a pagan substitute that is devoid of God's power. Uh, The Puritan uh, John Bunyan wrote a lot of poetry and one stanza I've never been able to forget ever since John Piper quoted it at a conference I went to several years ago. Uh, It goes like this. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Fly, John, fly, the gospel sings, and by its grace it gives me wings. Now, we have been seeing God's law commands us to have community, but it doesn't empower us to have community, right? And to try in our own strength to set up community is to set ourselves up for failure, On the other hand, the gospel that is pictured in this feast not only calls us to community, but it empowers us with that community by giving us the fellowship of the Trinity. Uh, We had pumps in Canada that had to have water poured into them first before they were able to pump any water out. That's the way it is with God's working in our hearts until His love is shed abroad in our hearts We don't have what it takes to be able to engage in community with other people. We have to taste first before we can give. And so this morning, if you are thirsty and dry yourself and you just don't feel like you have the strength or the resources to be able to enter into that koinonia fellowship and community with others, look to the Spirit for empowering. Look to Jesus and drink of Him. And look to the Father who had a community above and who has promised He will dwell within those who love Him and flow with His community out into the lives of other people. It's only in Him that biblical community can be empowered. Amen. Father God, we thank You for the model of community that You have shown from eternity past of perfect fellowship between You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank You for Your promise that as we uh, seek to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, as we love You, that You will come to us, manifest Yourself with us, and make Your home with us, that You will live in and through us by Your grace. That is our desire, Father, that we would not just engage outwardly in community actions, but lacking the power thereof. But, Father, that Your grace we would taste so richly of that we would have more than enough to share with others. Father, I pray that You would be pleased to come to us as a congregation, to manifest Yourself to us, to live Your grace through us. Empower us for community, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.